You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by James Hawes, who's a former Navy SEAL who completed BUDS training in 1963 and received orders to the newly formed SEAL Team 2. He subsequently volunteered for duty in Vietnam and became one of the first SEAL officers permanently assigned there as part of the government takeover of the CIA Op Plan 34A, governing covert operations into North Vietnam. This led to his clandestine CIA mission to build and command a mercenary navy in the Congo in 1965 and 1966. After several years of working for the agency, he attended Harvard, receiving an MBA in 1971, and finally settled in Asia, living there for a couple decades and pioneering a variety of business enterprises, including specialized shipping and commercial real estate. And he's the author of a new book, Cold War Navy Seal, my story of Che Guevara, War in the Congo, and the Communist Threat in Africa. Welcome, James. Thank you for taking the time to join us here on SpyCast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to ask, anytime I have somebody who, who takes an interesting career direction, and, and as much as Navy SEALs are in the news today, when you joined the SEALs, it didn't have the kind of history uh, and, and you know, mystique as it does. So what drove you to becoming a SEAL? Because you joined basically right after the SEALs had been formed in the first place. <clears throat> I was uh, in well. First of all, I was enamored by the, uh, the the UDTs, the underwater demolition teams, which were the predecessors of the uh, of the SEALs. And basically, they just took the secondary missions of the UDTs and made that the primary mission of the SEALs. <laughs> and the uh, uh, so it was a natural uh, just it was just a natural evolution. The people were the same. The training was the same. Uh, it's just that we were entering a different era under uh, John F. Kennedy's uh, uh, limited warfare uh, philosophy and uh, special forces, special operations types of, of, uh, of uh, activities that he saw were going to be in our future. And um, I was always enamored of the, of the frogmen. I watched that like everybody else did, I think. 
the Richard Wigmar movie in the 50s. And uh, um, it just I just couldn't see myself being happy doing anything else. Was there a history of military service in your family that preceded you? My dad was a World War II uh, Navy sailor on, the, on a battleship, uh, made most of the major <clears throat> uh, sea engagements in the Second World War on the USS Maryland. You hear a lot about people washing out of SEAL training for mental issues or for <laughs> physical reasons, whether they're injured or they just can't hack it physically. You almost had the seemingly least likely reason for not becoming a SEAL, and I'm thinking about your eyesight. Um, that, that, that seems to be, I understand you're not, you're not a pilot. You're not trying to be something where you need to have exceptionally good eyesight. Can you talk a little bit about how you're almost unable to have this career path you did because of something as silly as, as your bad vision. Well, those were the, that was, those were the days before uh, the uh, like laser, laser surgery and so forth. <clears throat> and um, there is a good reason to be able to see <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you're doing some of these events. But I didn't go in it uh, lackadaisically. I, I, I actually took the chamber, pressure chamber tests with contact lenses on uh, to ensure that I wouldn't be endangering myself or anybody else. And then it was just a matter of the of the of the, the the papers and the applications hadn't kept up with the technology. Technology at that time being contact lenses. <laughs> so I was able to get to the point where I proved that I could handle it physically, before the Bureau of Medicine <clears throat> caught up with the with the uh, with the question as to how I could have been such a medical phenomenon to go from 2200 to 2015 in less than a year. <laughs> so anyway, it all worked out because the senior medical officer on the Atlantic fleet had the, had the guts and the judgment to make a decision based on its own merits. And I'll always be grateful to the Navy for doing that. Is at that point, I mean, you got called on, on the carpet and you were able to reply, I'm first in my class. Yeah, well, at that time. Tray, right? yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, that was a, a <laughs> um, you know, it's like, no, obviously you could do the work. Yeah, right. And you volunteered to go to Vietnam. That was actually an interesting, uh, <clears throat> another roadblock that you had to get across because part of the agreement to let you stay in the SEALs was that you would not be deployed. Um, but the mission you were deployed to came straight from the Secretary of Defense. Can you talk a little bit about what this is? Certainly, this is a precursor to what you do in the Congo. Well, in those days, the, uh, the training, SEAL training was conducted by the Naval Amphibious School, not the SEAL teams. So the, <clears throat> the commanding officer of the, of the Naval Amphibious School was in, you know, his job was to get people trained and he needed trainers. And so part of his willingness to forward the recommendation to allow me to, me to complete training was that I would come back as an instructor. Uh, I was, through uh, what we, we might call SEAL creativity, I was able to get the, uh, a different chain of command to get my waivers in place so that when, the, when McNamara's office uh, decided that they wanted to uh, um, increase the size and scope and intensity of the 34 Alpha operations, it meant that uh, the DOD was going to take it over from CIA and so when the orders came down saying we need a SEAL, and remember there were only 10 officers, 10 SEAL officers on each coast at the time, so it wasn't a, a large pool to select from. Um, the executive officer of, the, uh, of SEAL Team 2 called me and said, hey, do you want to go and how soon can you leave? 
I said, yes, sir, 24 hours. Uh, but we got this little problem here with my current assignment. And he said, that will not be a problem. And sure enough, it wasn't. And to his credit, the, the commanding officer of the Naval Amphibious School, when he understood the situation, did everything he could to be supported. Can you talk a little bit about, as we mentioned it, you mentioned it now, we mentioned it in the bio at the beginning also, about what Plan 34A was. Can you give a little bit of the background? Um, it was, the, uh, it was an, an attempt to try to get intelligence in North Vietnam uh, by inserting uh, individuals or, or small teams into the North on, in disguised fishing junks originally. And then they were, had the first three SWIFTs in Vietnam were actually brought in by the CIA, uh, and those were used to go north to insert teams in, in as well to try to get intelligence and with, with, uh, with radio equipment and so forth to try to get intelligence on what was really going on in the north uh, at, the, at, the, at the grassroots level. And a lot of people may not have heard of this, and I think that's testament to how secret it was kept. I mean, plausible deniability is kind of the... And the key behind making sure this mission works. Mm -hmm. I mean, was you actually had, you mentioned in the book that the U.S. media is probably the one real issue you had to deal with. Like if that information came out. This is this is before the full commitment of American troops oh, yes. into Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So how how were you able to maintain that plausible deniability? <clears throat> well, we. We just made a real effort to keep a, a, a low profile. We made a, a real effort. There weren't many people, so it was obviously easier to contain the uh, the ripple effect of what we were doing. Um, a lot of those uh, reporters in those days um, weren't didn't seem to be real interested to getting into harm's way, <laughs> so that made it a little easier. Um, and um, they were more more focused on the politics, which is that was in Saigon. This mm -hmm. was in Da Nang, and you know it was out there, and you know they just had had other things to do with their time, and that made it a little easier. And to clarify, these are teams that you're leading of actually South Vietnamese commandos and troops. These aren't American soldiers. No, no, these were South Vietnamese. They were Nungs, which was a Chinese uh, tribal group in the South that were extremely brave and capable people, they were discriminated against by the South Vietnamese, so they were naturally drawn to the Americans who, who treated them really well, <laughs> other than sending them on one-way right. missions. <laughs> but <laughs> that wasn't the intent, that there would be one-way missions. So. so this mission actually led to a historical event that a lot of people probably have heard of that really changed the dynamic in Southeast Asia forever. Um, People in their history books may have read of a, a, an event in the Tonkin Gulf, um, whether we still don't know exactly what happened to the Maddox and the Turner Joy, but it was a response to what your operations were. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that was an operation that you were involved in. Oh, yeah. Well, we had been, we had, <clears throat> occasionally we got lucky uh, with uh, some of our efforts in the north. It was mostly harassment and I guess the strategy was to try to down, try to tie down uh, those in the north just to keep some of them, more of them from coming south uh, but uh, we had uh, we got we had uh, when we got the nasty PT boats which was a, a fabulous Norwegian boat that was much faster much heavier armed than the Swifts when we got those we had a capability for actually doing getting up close and doing some 
uh, offshore bombardment type uh, uh, of action. And we did some damage to some of the coastal radars. Coastal radars, of course, were being used to try to detect incoming aircraft, American aircraft on bombing missions. So <clears throat> that, uh, that made the North Vietnamese real unhappy. We then, uh, we then, just before what was called the Gulf of Tonkin incident, it became called the Gulf of Tonkin incident, we had gone up and hit the Han Ni and Han Mat, which were islands in the pathway to Haiphong Harbor. And I'm sure that alarmed them, made them even angrier. And um, assume, presumably there was this retaliation of the, of the, of the SWAT house against the, uh, against the American destroyers. How close, how threatening, I have no idea, and I'm not sure anybody else really right. does. But. Can we presume they were, they were looking for you guys when they ran into the Turner? Joy and the Maddox, or do you think they just saw two American ships and decided? I think they. I think those. Uh, I think the captains of those SWAT saw two targets and said, you know, let's go get them yeah. for Uncle Ho. You know, <laughs> whatever it was. <laughs> whatever it was, it was a bad decision. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, it came back to haunt everybody in the end. But um, so let's shift to the Congo because I think we want to spend a lot of time talking about that. That's really kind of the meat and potatoes mm -hmm. of this book. Can you lay out for it? I mean. Speaking for most Americans, I maybe I shouldn't, but I will. It's, it's sub-Saharan Africa is not necessarily something that we learn a lot about in school, um, but there's certainly during this time period, it was the battlefield of the Cold War, much in the same way the Caribbean and Latin America and Southeast Asia. Sub-Saharan Africa was was a major battlefield of the Cold War, certainly for special operations and for intelligence. Why the Congo? Why? What was so important about being able to accomplish? some of the strategic goals that we had there? Like, what, what did they have to offer us? The answer is going to be similar to a lot of what people are expecting when we talk about places like the Middle East that had natural resources. But what was there? Well, there, there, there were critical natural resources, but they were critical to the, uh, to the, uh, the, the development of atomic weapons. And, uh, you know, if you remember what it was like in those days, uh, you know, I, I, grew up, I grew up in the small towns thousand miles from anywhere uh, doing uh, doing drills uh, in the event of an atomic attack so the you know the, the mentality was atomic 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 and uh, some of those critical uh, minerals were available only in the Congo so that made a part of it uh, part of it was just the the part of it was just the um, almost instinctual reaction to if the communists are there we got to be against them right and uh <clears throat> Enlai, who was premier of china at the time and you know mao zedong's right hand man was saying the key to africa is control of the congo and uh so that made it that exacerbated the fears and the concerns in washington um the uh remember the 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 u.s and the west had had created a, a stake for themselves post-independent Congo when, when the Katangi secession occurred right after the Congo got independent, the West and the U.S. poured tons of money and U.N. troops and, I mean, airplanes lined up wingtip to wingtip along the, along the airfield in, in Leopold, what at that time was Leopoldville, um, in an effort to keep the Congo together. Now, remember, the Congo, all these, these, these borders were done without any concern about tribal 
natural tribal boundaries or anything. It was just the West created these artificial these artificial uh, boundaries when they started the the panicked decolonization that was occurring at the time, and um, so they, so there was a real stake in trying to keep the Congo together. Uh, when in fact the only viable from what I could see, the only viable administration, the only viable, really, really viable economy was Katanga. If we, if it, it might have been a whole different subsequent 50 years if the U.S. had just gotten behind Katanga and let the rest of the Congo right. find its own way. Well, I mean, course, it, people may not appreciate how big oh, yeah. the Congo, I mean, you look at a yeah. map of Africa and we, you know, it, it's actually, most maps have Africa actually smaller than it is in real life because of mm-hmm. ethnocentrism and everything else, but the Congo as a country is massive. Yeah. I mean, you probably fit most, you know, take up most of Europe, just yeah. its own country. Right. So. right. Yeah. It's, in fact, in fact, Kamina had an airfield that was supposed to be an emergency place for, for Europe. It had the longest, I think, the longest airstrip in the world was in, was in the Congo, which, it, was a, which was supposed to be a go-to place in right. the event nuclear war broke out in Europe. You talk a little about the Simbas, because uh, it wasn't just necessarily that Joe and Lai had mentioned the Congo, that there were mineral resources, but there was an actual fully funded arm by the Soviets and their allies, rebel, rebel, rebel force in the Congo fighting against what we were trying to keep it being somewhat uh, a stable country. <clears throat> this is a... Uh, when I first went there, I believed the, the story that Lumumba was a communist, which is what the West believed. I subsequently, my, in, in my research and talking to people and so forth and being there and so on, I come to the conclusion that Lumumba wasn't really a communist. He was just going wherever he could get help, and he wasn't getting from any from the West. <clears throat> because of the divisions that occurred as a result of, of all those machinations, <clears throat> the Soviets saw their chance to jump in, as did the Chinese, to to try to get control of the same, exert the same kind of influences that the West were trying to uh, uh, in, uh, instill, and uh, and it was and it was a natural because the Simbas then are not much different than the gangs that are going that are active today. It was all about rape, pillaging, and plunder. And stealing, getting the gold up in the northeast, mm-hmm. and in the, the diamonds, wherever. And I mean, it was just, it was just thugism. Um, and uh, but what was, but what was beginning to occur, and we nipped it just in time, was the 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 Eastern Bloc, Soviet Union, and the and the Chinese training was beginning to produce some discipline and some effect on developing a real a real um, military threat. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that we acted when we did and did the things that we did nipped that before it could become really an, an organized kind of a, of, a, of a much more organized insurrection mm-hmm. than it was. Che Guevara's big, uh, big mistake, of course, was thinking that there was some ideological motivation on the part of the symbols that he could exploit in his zeal to promote the revolution, and of course that was nonsense. He right. did a, his his assessment was totally wrong, and uh, the 
the Simbas were not at all interested in the glory of revolution. They were interested in the gold and the diamonds and right. the, and, 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 and the other nasty things they did. Which is interesting because the, the opposing force to them, um, we kind of we laid out the symbols, let's look at some of the people opposing them, was the five commando force, which was uh, a group of essentially cutthroat mercenaries, mm-hmm. mainly from places like South Africa, mm-hmm. whose real only reason to be there also was gold and diamonds and money. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there were... They were, there were the motivations for the motivations that the range of motivations on the part of the mercenaries, and I worked mostly with the five commando was was British Commonwealth people. They were from South Africa, Rhodesia, Kenya, but they're all white, uh, white Africans, many of them born in Africa. Um, they were, um, and then there was a seven commando, which was mostly Belgians. It really didn't have much to do with because the five commander was a much more effective unit for, for what we were trying to get accomplished. Um, and given the history of the Belgians in the Congo, I really didn't care to have much to do with them anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if I had my choice, which I did. Um, but they, um, they, um, they, their motivations ran the range from guys who just liked being soldiers, a few. I just like soldiering, just like like war, uh, to those who want an excuse to kill what they call Kaffirs. I mean, it was just a, a range of, of, of motivations, uh, none of them very uh, high-minded. Right. <laughs> well, uh, most but, of them but, had some kind of training, yeah, and they had washed out exactly. or been kicked out, yeah, or kicked out of legitimate military. Or just they didn't have a war where they were, and they wanted to, be in a, they wanted to come to a war. Uh, of course, the other part of the, that motivation generally had to do with liberating the banks, and uh, and looting, you know, the, all the establishments uh, that they were they were in. And they they it's interesting even even as um, even with those s- s- motivations, that it was interesting to say they all wanted some kind of rationale. They wanted to rationalize a bit by also tr- doing some good. So. When a column would hit a town, the first one part of the column would peel off and go help the mer- save the missionaries because there were huge Eric terrible atrocities mm-hmm. against the missionaries. Uh, so half of them would hit, head for the missionaries and half of them would head for the banks <laughs> or the gold mines or whatever the mines were there. So it was, you know, they, they say the old West, uh, this was the whole West on steroids. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the CIA sent you in to form a Navy. You had just quit the SEALs. Now, again, perfect timing, really, because mm-hmm. this is when, in early 1965, things had been ratcheting up at that time. Uh, I'm interested because this is the, your kind of first foray into kind of understanding the, the agency at the time. Mm-hmm. Because as you explained in the book, it, dramatically different ways of doing things mm-hmm. than the Navy had been before. And you, you tell this story about being in Tucson, Arizona, and very quickly realizing the CIA was a different animal. Mm-hmm. You tell a little bit about that. Well, uh, when I was, uh, when somebody realized I didn't really know anything about who I was supposed to be employed by, um, somebody said, well, we should send him to an ops familiarization course, and it was down in outside of Tucson. And uh, nobody said uh, the name of the place I was going to, where I was going, um, what the name of it was, uh, who was going to meet me, anything. I thought, well, you know, this is CIA. How will they know everything? Yeah. 
uh, it'll just work out. <laughs> so I, so I, I got on the airplane. I arrived in Tucson. Remember, this is a long time ago, so Tucson wasn't the place it is today. It was pretty sleepy on a Sunday afternoon. I arrived on the Sunday afternoon, and the airport cleared out. Nobody there. I waited a while. Nobody there. I thought, well, I guess I get better get to figure it out <laughs> where I'm supposed to be going. So I remembered from, 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 from Vietnam flying on Air America aircraft. So I went and I went to the yellow pages at the phone booth and I looked for air parks that had those kind of that had those same kind of aircraft mm-hmm. and I picked the one that looked like uh, most likely. And I called and said, uh, "My name is Jim Hawes. Does that name mean anything to you?" <laughs> and uh, <laughs> just a minute, please. And so I hear some rustling around and then I hear oh. Um, not repeatable. You can say that, it's fine. <laughs> and, and then the, 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 the woman comes back on the line in the most officious manner said, oh, there will be someone there to meet you shortly. So that was a really good lesson in, in expectations and what to, be, to be alert for everything. <laughs> and when you, had, when you had been tapped to do this, there had already been some groundwork done by a predecessor of yours, a man named Jordy McKay, who had been in the Congo mm-hmm. before you. And a little bit of, of what you were doing was building off of what he did. Yeah, and what he was, he was doing was mm-hmm. building off what he had done mm-hmm. in, against Castro right. for several years. Right. Can you tell a little bit about McKay uh, and what, what ended up getting him kicked out in the end was not something he did badly. It was actually something he did well, but it went against the rules. Oh, yeah. He did a terrific job. Um, he, he, was, uh, he was terrific. And, and um, what he did was uh, he helped the five commando in a way – Five Commando could not have helped themselves uh, make this really uh, disabling strike on their base, on their one of their main camps at a place called Fizi Baraka, and um, it didn't it didn't cripple them completely, but it certainly hurt them a lot. And then we were able to follow up after that and really and really uh, put an end to them. Um, but um, the uh, he, it's interesting. He didn't know it at the time, uh, but that the Cubans were there at that at that particular time. We didn't. None of them, nobody knew that the Cubans were there until we proved it a little bit later. And uh, and of course it was Che. Mm-hmm. And uh, Che had uh, he had, Mickey had had, had, had uh, a uh, that's his true name, Mickey. Uh, Mickey had had a business in 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 Cuba. A salvage business in Cuba, and because um, he was an had been an exclusive ordnance disposal guy and a salvage diver and so forth, and a Merchant Marine Academy guy, so he had a you know a terrific background for it. And he was living in Cuba doing the doing the salvage business, and uh, uh, his business began to fall off. He was precluded from buying U.S. equipment by the Minister of Industry. And guess who was the Minister of Industry? Good old Che Guevara. And uh, so finally, he just got squeezed out of got squeezed out of Cuba. Then he went and worked on the anti-Castro operations out of Miami, which is how he got going into maritime mm-hmm. paramilitary operations as an experience, which was the prelude to his going uh, to the Congo, which then set the stage for for me and the Cubans that uh, came with me. We'll be right back after this.
The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Well, a key to this mission, of course, was denying that Americans were involved at all. And that's what gets right. him in trouble in the end, is that he felt oh. he needed to make sure this mission didn't fail, and that was problematic. The mission, I have no, no doubt in my mind, the mission would have failed if Mickey hadn't gone on it. And so it was really interesting, of course, the half, half, of, the, half of the agency wanted to punish him and half of the agency or at least those in the special operations division wanted to reward him which is what he deserved right and that that all goes back to, to in my opinion to the philosophy if you're going to send people in those kinds of situations you better make you better make sure that you're sending the kind of people who are capable of, of the kind of judgment it takes to be successful under the constraints that you're trying to operate under and in Mickey's case, he did what had to be done in order to be successful. Uh, no one would have known about it. Um, and uh, he had gone on, he had got an intelligence medal, and uh, <laughs> he had been everybody's hero. Instead, instead, he was precluded from going back, thank goodness, because that meant I right. got to go. <laughs> <laughs> was, it, was that a lesson that you took to heart? I mean, that the fact that he did... Arguably, he made the right decision, but the politics and the diplomacy of the matter got him essentially fired from doing the job that he wanted to do. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah, but but it didn't keep me from going out when I when I when I absolutely needed to. But when you take that assignment, you take you take it under the under the uh, operating uh, rules that go along with the assignment. So if you're going to make an exception to it, it better, better be a really good reason right. to make the exception. And you better really be able to justify it, and you better be right. right. <laughs> In Mickey's case, he was right. He went on and had, another, had a great career, but he just didn't get to go back to the Congo. And you went mm -hmm. in, and even though he had set the stage, you really were building from scratch. I yeah. mean, there's very little... Uh, I mean, he did the best with what he had, but yeah. you, you, you had boats that were in terrible shape. Oh, yeah. You had mm -hmm. no crews. Right. So he hit the ground basically. Right. No, he did a different. He did a slightly yeah. different kind of an operation, and what we did, we just came up and set a real, set up a real interdiction navy. Uh, it's, it's, that term is a little exaggerated, but you know, it was it, it was what it was. Right. <laughs> well, you think about the Congo being landlocked, but you have a lake in the middle of there that is rivals the size of some of our biggest lakes in the United States. It was a huge lake, and it was. I think it's one that either the first or second deepest lake in the world, and and because it's 450 miles long and only 45 miles wide, when the when storms came out of the north, the sea state you thought you were in the, you thought you were in the South China Sea in the winter in the in the monsoon season. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was it was rough. So one one thing that you immediately did was to link up 
with the five commando force, or at least some of the membership of the five commando force, was you actually needed they were the big fighting force in the area. You needed to coordinate your operations. And so tell me a little bit about Jock Cassidy, because talk about a colorful character that, from the way you described him, was essential for you to be successful in the Congo. Jock Cassidy was, in the morning, he was an excellent soldier. I mean, he had been a well-British trained soldier. He was a murderous thug. That was proven <laughs> over and over, more than once. Um, but he had been, he was my Colonel Hoare's, man Mike Hoare's regimental sergeant major, which meant that he trained everyone, he was in charge of the training of every one of the mercenaries. So I quickly, and not knowing anyone from the other, I quickly realized that if I want to know who's who and who the best guys are, I got to get the one guy who knows, and that was Jock Cassidy. I also knew that Jock Cassie would had a huge desire to be an, an officer. Remember, we're in his context now, mm-hmm. to be an officer. I mean, to call him a U.S. Naval officer, you would never, you know, you'd go, God, he was, <laughs> would never do that. But in the context of where, where we were and where, where he was at, he wanted, that meant a lot. I knew that, knew that was my hook. And so uh, when he came back from sick leave, right about this time, I asked him to come over. I got word to him to come over, and I pitched him at that particular point. And, and I pitched him in a way he had never been spoken to before uh, and made it clear that if he, if, if he was prepared to work with me to do what needed to be done to build up what we needed to build up in order to execute our mission, that I would see he was... I wouldn't bid. I wouldn't pay more money. I wasn't going to bid for more money for his services, but I would get him made a lieutenant. And if he was as good as he seemed to be, then he captain very quickly. And uh, that 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 was that was the magic combination. And uh, so he signed on. And basically, our, our, our deal was this: Okay, Jock, these are five commando mercenaries. I'm not in the chain of command. I don't pay them. Uh, you run the men. I run the operations. Okay. I, and we had that. We had that understanding from day one, and it worked out. It worked out. It worked out. Right. I mean, we did what we, we were successful. Did we have a few problems along the way? Yeah. But but it worked out. I want to lay yeah, out. He, he drank. He was a. You know, they all drank yeah. too much. So I, I, you know, I never drank with them. Never, never did anything that stuff. I was just asking for trouble. When you know you got booze and weapons or right. bad combinations, and uh, uh, but he never drank on the job. He never drank on the job. He was when he was on duty, he was on duty. I want to lay out how how ballsy this was for you because you were you were only 26 years old at the time. The highest rank you had achieved in the Navy was essentially an O2 lieutenant yeah. junior grade. Mm-hmm. You were coming across as a commander, so basically three ranks higher than that, and you're not going to just disabuse anyone of the, the perception yeah. of that you are that rank. That also made me equivalent to whore. Right. And that, at the time, I didn't realize immediately how important that was, but it became clear that that was useful. And you say later on that you said you know, he'd never been talked to that way before. It was probably just as likely, knowing what happens with him later in life, just as likely that he would have pulled out a gun and shot you, let alone agreed to work with you. I mean, that was... That was um, 
you kind of could have gone either way at that moment. Well, you know, uh, I think in those situations you have to, you better have good instincts, and if you do, then trust them, because you got nothing else to go on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it just it was instinctual, I think it, and it also I remember I'd flat, freshly come from, or not all that long, had come from being a being an instructor in the teams. And the way I dressed him, the way I dealt with him, turned out to be effective. If it had happened three or four years later, I'm not sure I would have retained that same uh, delivery. Right. Okay, but in this case, it really worked. Another place you you improvised in an extraordinary way was in collecting your intelligence because you met up with a Greek friend who I'm using the word friend on purpose because later in life... Uh, you've maintained your friendship with mm-hmm. him. Um, and this was someone who was not an intelligence officer. He wasn't an officer at all. He was just a, um, a, fisherman. Someone, a fisherman in the area. <laughs> and you were able to use him effectively to provide you with great insight into what was happening on the lake. Tassos was a classic Greek entrepreneur. I mean, jeez, he was something. And when the when the first shots got fired, a lot of the Belgians were couldn't get out of there fast enough. And so, so Tassos was standing there on the shore with buying up their fishing fleet for pennies on the dollar. And he turned it into a really, you know, a really good business and and did more sort of com- and as the, as the Belgians were were fleeing, uh, Tasso was happy to take up some of the opportunities that they were walking away from. So not only did he did the fishing, but then and then he he uh, converted a couple of those narrow gauge railroad cars to to uh, to cold storage, to cold cold cars, and he could send all the way down to Elizabethville and other places. And then he he, he got a big drying operation so he could sell to the locals. Because believe it, I mean one of the one of the sad things you would see is you would see these kids with distended bellies standing on the shore of Lake Tanganyika, which was teeming with Nile perch, and they didn't know how to fish. Hmm. And you think you remember that that classic. Uh, Thing about it. don't yeah. give them a sandwich, yeah, give them a teacher how to yeah. make sandwich, whatever, <laughs> whatever it was, we had to do with fish. Right. That uh, was just a, it was a classic of that. Anyway, so it meant that Tassos had access to every every port from every country on Lake Tanganyika. So what a natural intelligence net that was. He and I really hit it off. It, it just it's good chemistry, and he was a good guy, and uh, I. I invited him over early on to see what we were trying to do. And um, he, he had these boats that were shot up and we weren't going to use anymore that we were replacing as part of you know, getting the Navy built up. And um, he said, uh, what are you going to do with that boat, that hull? And I said, not a thing, Tussis. It's just taking up space. He said, can I have it? I said, yeah, just make sure nobody attributes it to the U.S. government. But you can have it. In fact, you can have these Volvo engine spare parts because we're not going to have any more of those. Last I heard of it for a while. So then he is determined that he's going to do me a favor because he just can't stand the fact that I did this for him and right. he can't do anything for me. I said, Tosses, just keep me alive. Just you know, tell me what's going on. Keep me informed. He said, of course, I'll do that. But what else can I do for you? I said, Tosses, and I figured this would be a stopper. I said, Tosses, I just love baklava. You know, the, the, right. the, the Greek uh, pastry. <clears throat> Three days later, he pitches up at my door with a fresh baklava 
which he had, I didn't realize it, but Olympic Airways flew from Athens, Greece to Johannesburg via Elizabethville. So he managed to get a baklava put on in Athens and taken off at Elizabethville. In the middle of sub-Saharan Africa (laughs) three days later. (laughs) But that was the kind of guy he was. And uh, another kind of of funny story with Tassas. Tassas wanted to do a fish meal plant. And with all those fish, and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, whoa. Because the, the, there was a moth, a moth that had a life cycle, a monthly life cycle, that looked like snow. One, one night of the, with the month, it looked like there was snow on the ground. The moth, these moths would go through their thing. And, of course, in those perch are feeding off these moths right. on the lake and so forth. So, I mean, it was just teeming. And he wanted to do, he wanted to do a, a fish meal plant. I said, Dawson, that sounds like a great idea. Uh, there's a fisheries attaché at the Abidjan, Every Coast. We'll send him a telegram. <laughs> so ha, we sent this guy a telegram, and he gets from Albertville in the Congo, and he probably scratched his head. So he sent a he sent a, a cable over to the embassy in Leopoldville to say, who, "Who's this guy Hawes, and what's this about a fish meal plant?" <laughs> My boss, who was the world's all-time great boss, said. Hawes, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, Dick, it seemed like a really good idea, and Tussles could pull it off. And these people need protein. They need food. They're starving. He said, look, that's not what you're you're there for. You're there to prosecute this war. Although it does sound like a a classic special (laughs) operations move of getting kind of the people behind you and and doing that. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, it's, you know, anyway. Different time, it might have yeah. might have happened. <laughs> so uh, the ships themselves, you, you got rid of the old ones. Um, how hard was it to convince the U.S. government to send you top-of-the-line ships that you actually needed for this mission? It wasn't difficult at all because the, the, the original determination to set up what they called a, a pocket Coast Guard, the, the, the 303 Committee, special group, whatever they're called, uh, in, incorporated... Uh, because Bill Hamilton and the guys at the, in the maritime group at the CIA were understood what needed to be done, and so they had in that the Swifts and the and the other uh, the smaller boats, what we call the PTs, the sea craft. So that was incorporated in the package. That didn't take any selling at mm-hmm. all. And the Swift boats were the. Key. I mean, people. Unfortunately, what most people know about when they hear Swift boats is the John Kerry Swift boating right, right. in two thousand four. But and so maybe they don't appreciate what these are, but mm-hmm. these are extraordinary craft that kind of were the perfect platform for what you were trying to do in the Congo. Yeah, they're very versatile. They're low maintenance. Those GM-1271 diesel engines that we had would just run and run and run if you took it the minimal care, which is all we could do. Yeah, uh, yeah so they were they were a great selection. It's interesting, though. Everything I had to do, everything I saw that the CIA did with respect to equipment and so forth, was all there was n- no confusion about identifying the best tool for employment where they needed to be employed. So you got the equipment in place, but you even needed the crews. And there were already Cuban exiles operating in the Congo as part of an air force called the Mikasi. Uh, and you actually were able to acquire your Cuban crews because of a, a snafu in the Caribbean um, where uh, – actually, you can hear all about this. We, we did an earlier podcast 
about two years ago with a man named Felix Rodriguez. Oh, really? uh, yeah, and so Maybe Saturday night he'll be there. Right? Yeah, so and Felix Felix talked about uh, he was on the other side of the radio when some of these swift boat crews in the Caribbean oh, shot up a boat thinking it was something else, and that was kind oh, of the end of their that. operations. I didn't know he was there, but oh, well. uh, he, he he basically is like, yeah, well, they saw you can mm. tell the story. They saw only half the name of the ship and right. assumed it was something else. Uh, and so this story has been told, again, if you want to listen to it, about two years ago, check out the Felix one. Can you talk a little bit about how their mistake was your benefit? Well, first of all, these, uh, these, you know, fif- these 15 guys were just extraordinarily brave, proud professionals. They, uh, they, wanted to, they wanted to take on communism wherever in the world it, could, it, it had to be uh, uh, confronted. They, uh, they, there was, their leader was a fellow named Ricardo Chavez, who lives in Monterey right now. And the number two is a guy named Ricardo Pichardo, who's in Miami. I'll be seeing in a couple of days. And they were, uh, they were experts on these, on these SWIFTs. They had lots of operating oper- operations under their belts. Uh, they uh, they were disciplined. They uh, we not, literally did not, not do not exaggerate. Not had one incident that whole time with any one of those those Cubans. They were just outstanding. And uh, of course, and, and so they came on. And they got we got the interdiction patrol started with them. And then uh, they they became the training cadre to train the five commando mercenaries mm-hmm. that we were turning into sailors. Because the State Department was very nervous about having us having our Cubans, even though they were most of them were stateless and they were totally plausibly denial, right. a plausible deniability. But uh, nonetheless, uh, they were very nervous and wanted them out as fast as possible. So the agency prevailed uh, and had them there to be used as a training cadre for the for the uh, for the mercenaries. I mean, the mercenaries didn't you know you had port starboard. Right. I mean, he had to start literally at the, you know, right at the beginning, in disciplined fire and so forth. And, you know, we were we, we tried really hard not to, uh, to make sure we understood the targets because you're on the lake at night. I mean, you it's the definition of black out there right. in the middle of the Congo. Well, and there the might be legitimate yeah. people out on the yeah, lake, yeah, fishermen, yeah, exactly. and things like yeah. that. You don't want to shoot them up. Yeah, so we had to try to teach them fire discipline and all that. All that kind of stuff, and the Cubans did it, and they were just just outstanding. Well, it was and they they've yeah. never gotten any right. recognition. That just drives me nuts. Yeah, I mean, even yeah. the Mikazi, the the Air Force pilots, barely yeah. have gotten any recognition. Yeah. And I yeah. I had known all about them yeah. just because of where I'm from. The listeners know I'm from Miami, mm-hmm. but even the, never heard the fact of these Cuban naval crews yeah. being brought. Again, I even knew the story about why they got you know they they were looking for a yeah. different ship, but not that they had moved on to work for you. And, and they were not mercenaries. They didn't right. get paid much. And, you know, they were, yeah, it's just. Well, the differences mm. in the styles between the Cubans and the mercenaries oh. was extraordinary. I mean, yeah. not, not two groups that were going to hang out together no. very much at no. night. And they didn't at all. No. And was that purpose? Did you have to, did they just understand that this was not their group to hang out with? Or did you have to physically say, don't, don't deal with the mercenaries? I left that to Ricardo yeah. Chavez to handle. They were his, that was his team. And, and all I had to do was say to Ricardo, you know, I, I don't, I said to Ricardo, I said, I don't mix with these guys except for business. And I think that's turned out to be a pretty good policy. That's all I had to say. Yeah. And uh, there, there never, never was any, uh, any sort of fraternization at all. 
So at what point did you know, you already mentioned this, but at what point did you know that you were fighting Che, that Che was on the other side? We, uh, it's funny, on the lake, uh, you know, we picked up some, ra- we, we picked up some radio chatter. They weren't, you know, the, the, the Che's guys weren't being careful at all. We picked up some radio chatter, and of course the Cubans said, hey, that's, those are Cubans. My Cubans said, those are Cubans. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it started, yeah. because there, nobody in the world knew where Che was at the time. There was no... No, except so, there were rumors in Miami, of course, but there weren't anywhere else in the world, and certainly not in the world's in West's intelligence networks. Yeah. That's funny, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was you guys. Your information was the first yeah. time CIA yeah. had heard of him right. being there. And then, and then once we once we once we knew that for sure that there were the, the Cubans were there, then the five commando mercenaries actually found documents that uh, you know that proved mm-hmm. uh, that they were there. There, there are times when these operations kick off, whether military operations or otherwise. I mean, I imagine uh, Patton, if he had lived, would have gotten a kick out of hearing what Rommel had to say right. about him as he moved through the desert or into to, to France. You got the opportunity to get a firsthand play-by-play of your operations from the other side with Che's diary. Mm-hmm. How amazing was that as how awesome of a source was it to see exactly how effective you were being by the guy you were fighting against because he half of his diary is about your operations against him well naturally i was pleased to see it because writing this story so long after it occurred uh it was certainly been open to challenge as to the veracity of what i had to say And basically, Jay is validated it. So it's a pretty good source <laughs> said, validation. You don't right? believe? Ask yeah. Jay, <laughs> which is what I said to the Miami Herald guy yeah. when we interviewed at the commemoration. We had that. We had the 50th commemoration in 2014 of the of the Stanleyville KM8 rescue, which was, I think, still the largest the rescue, the largest number of American hostages in history. That was quite something. Those people. Those people came from, people came from Congo. People came from Europe, to thank the people who had rescued them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one doctor, who was murdered. He had six kids. Five of the six kids showed up, and five of those kids are still in the Congo. Can you believe? Um, and the gal, the little girl, who blonde blue-eyed girl, who was on the cover of Match magazine in 1964, she came to thank the guy who had rescued her, and she didn't even know it was a Cuban. Right, yeah. She got a... there. Oh, it was very emotional, very moving. It's really quite something. It, yeah. it, what's interesting... And by the me. way, it got no coverage in the no. U.S. media. Uh, no, yeah. Mammy Herald did a, you know, they did a good job. They tried. But uh, nobody, none of the politicians, nobody paid any attention. Amazing. <clears throat> I, what was amazing to me was... His diary, Che's diary, really showed that you gave him way more than he could handle. And, and not you and the Mikasi, the yeah, Air Force, yeah. of where it's almost a day-by-day of him, his lamentations back to Fidel, saying these guys are basically kicking our ass. Mm-hmm. And to the point in the end where he's like, I can't do this anymore. Like you, you had not only made it very difficult for him to operate, but you had destroyed the morale of his guys so much yeah. that he was just like, no, don't send any more money. We're basically done here. Well, you got to understand, Che was a vainglorious, romantic revolutionary. He didn't give a damn about building up economy. He didn't care about feeding people. 
despite what he says, the only thing he wanted to do was wage revolution, and for him, Rat Mitch, bang, bang, shoot him up. So when his guys, when his guys, find, and, and when he when he stopped getting ammunition because we were interdicting yeah. it, when he stopped getting food and medicine because we were interdicting it, and his and his guys went to him and said, "Jay, we'll stay here with you, but we're all going to die here." He finally overcame his own uh, determination to be right uh, and glorious, and said, "Okay, we're out of here." So I realize I may have actually skipped over something. You talked about interdicting things. Let's nut and bolt that a little bit. So when you talk about interdicting, you're basically, when you when you identified through radar, through operations, a mm-hmm. boat that was bringing stuff to the rebels or to Che, yeah. interdicting means shooting the hell out of it, basically. Well, I mean, in the most basic sense. That's a, Yeah, I mean, if they don't stop. Yeah. I mean, if they stop, well, then you, you, know, you take them and you... Uh, and you tow them to, to shore, and you, you take their stuff, and you turn them over to the five commando and let them, or the second Congolese pair battalion, and you let them deal with them. But, no, we didn't shoot just to shoot. Right. I mean, we sure shot if you had to, but didn't shoot just to shoot. So uh, part of the, the Felix Rodriguez podcast from a couple years ago was his eventual capture of Che Guevara uh, in Bolivia, I believe in 1967, but you almost got him. Oh. In 1964, I mean that—that's five. Five. I'm sorry, 1965. Yeah. Um, and I'm reading that, knowing Che's final times, and I'm still kind of tense, like edge of my seat. I'm like, yeah. oh, they're gonna get him. Oh, yeah. November. I, I, we don't still don't know amongst ourselves how we missed him that night in November '65. And the only thing, the only thing that we can make, because we we were there, poised. We had got, you know, we knew that just a matter of time before he was going to try to make his exit. And one of the Mikasi aircraft crashed. It was flown by a, a French pilot. It crashed, and we all went to the scene of the crash. The boats went to the scene of the crash to try to you know, do whatever needed to be done at the time. And the only thing, the only other thing we could make is that that happened to be the time that he actually got underway, because nothing else makes any sense. Yeah. I just don't know how we could have missed him otherwise. Because that, so. at, at that you you had two swift boats that you only ran one at a time. Mm-hmm. You held back the other one as a cure. Yeah, kind right, of, right. And this was a you had it was all hands on deck. Yeah. Plus we had plus around. we had the Ermans out there and the in the little boats mm-hmm. the uh, the, the uh, sea craft. So you know we were yeah it was all hands on deck. We're going to get this guy. And, Just uh, so lucky. I mean, <laughs> fortunate for him that he was able to to sneak out that one yeah, time probably. Yeah. Let me look at the end of the mission because you. Through all this fighting, I know you were involved in some of it, not all of it, and from all this, um, you know, potentially being killed by your, your the five commandos who, you know, drank themselves and started shooting bullets all over the place, you almost died not from combat, but from Hemorrh- guess, hemorrhagic dinghy hemorrhagic fever, yeah. fever yeah. Um, which I think it sounds as horrible. Oh, it is as horrible as it sounds. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> oh, I like to say, ah, no. Yeah. yeah, it is. It really is. It was terrible. That, it was, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, it, it's, it was interesting the way that happened. Uh, I, you know, I told you about the storms on, that could happen on the lake. Well, I saw a storm coming up where I, where I was staying. I could see, could see the storm coming in. And, I, again, instinct. I said, uh-oh, this is not good. I dashed for, the, for over to where the boats were. And... <laughs> By that time, the storm was hitting. I got one one boat pulled away from the quay, 
I dove in, swam to the other boat, got up on it, and just as I was getting on that boat, I felt the strangest sensation. It was like a, it was raining, and it was cold, and so I naturally it would be chilly, but it was that different kind of a chill. Now, we just didn't think of anything because it was too busy trying to save that boat. And the, the, the sea state was such, I, don't, I still don't know how this happened. I was in that swift, and we were over the quay. The wave was over the quay, and I slammed that thing into reverse, and it backed off with the wave, and it didn't, it would have broken the keel of the boat if it had ever sat down. You know, only, only God was the only person that could have made that happen, because I, I sure didn't. And uh, anyway, so backed off, got the boat secured and so forth, and we, we got everything taken care of, and the, the tragedy was avoided, the damage to the boats were avoided, and I went back to get warm and, uh, and uh, have a bite to eat, and I sat there, and I started shaking uncontrollably, just shaking, and went upstairs and was so sick, violently sick and so forth, and I was that way for about three days. I couldn't, couldn't drink water. I couldn't do anything. It was They call it bone-breaking disease, you know, where you feel like someone's, mm -hmm. your joints, or someone's trying to break your bones at your joints, so I've been in the opposite direction. The, the, the communicator, the one-pad, time-pad guy, yeah, I think he thought I was going to die. I was hoping I would. I mean, it was, yeah. it was just horrible. And uh, so he... Um, he, he sent a message to, to Leopoldville and said, I, you know, I think this guy's going to die. You better get a plane over here and get him out. So, of course, Tig did that. And that was another day, getting the plane there, and then another day to get back. Well, by this time, my body had decided it was going to live. And uh, I was uh, dehydrated and hadn't had any food. So I, I, by the time we got back across the Congo, uh, Dick was there to meet me, of course, because that's the kind of boss he was. Uh, I got off the plane. I said, "Geez, Dick, I'm I'm embarrassed. I think I'm going to live." And he said, "Well, I don't know where you are or not, but you're going to the hospital." So I go to what would would have been the premier hospital when the Belgians are Colavanium, and nothing happened. I didn't get water. I didn't get food. I didn't get tested. I didn't get anything. And of course, by this time, I was famished, and and so I just took control of my own medical needs and walked out. Yeah. Got in a taxi and went to a restaurant. He <laughs> <laughs> got some food, and you know, from then on, it was it was all okay. But it was <laughs> well. I mean, the crazy thing, yeah, thinking back to terrible. when that storm was happening, and I know the seals are tough, but but you were in the early stages of dengue hemorrhagic fever, mm -hmm. and the swells were six feet or bigger, yeah, and you yeah. dove into them and swam through them to save well, the other but, boat. But, yeah, but that's not such a big deal for us. I mean, we're, we're water guys. Well, water I understand people, that, so. but you had dengue hemorrhagic yeah, fever well, at it the was same time. Yeah, yeah. You do it. Well, what's interesting is later on, you didn't know that at the time. Like you no. said, no one saw you in the hospital. Um, you were diagnosed kind of retrospectively yeah. by someone who people may not know the name, but they yeah. certainly know his work in Africa, and that's William Close. Yeah. Right. Who, who is the first person to identify another yeah. African virus yeah. known as Ebola. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so someone probably who understood a little bit about the hemorrhagic fever that you were going through. Um, mm. Yeah, no, that you, you spent that much time in Vietnam and in the Congo in the midst of combat operations and almost get taken down by a, yeah, a rare crazy, African disease. Yeah. Um, then what? I mean, then you, you, you left the Congo uh, and you decided... To stay in the CIA or to get out? Yeah. I, I well, um, I stayed for a little while and then I got out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Was there was there a you had done what you needed to do and it was time to move on, or did, was there something that that drove you? I'm I'm not trying to make you badmouth the CIA. I'm oh, not, not at all. To, I have, no, you I couldn't. Can't. You couldn't. I, I have nothing bad to say about them. I got treated so well. Uh, I have no. I've never had any complaints. I just wanted to do something yeah. else, basically. Uh, yeah. Why did you end up settling in Asia? Was it with the thirty something years moving up there? Well. It, those in, in Asia were just beginning to move uh, economically after the after the Vietnam War mm-hmm. and so forth, and uh, f- and for me uh, Asia was like uh, putting a mad dog into a meat house. I mean, I just I just loved the uncertainty and the and the and then the things that needed to be done. I'm a lot better pioneer than I am businessman. I'm afraid, uh, and I just like doing things. Yeah. You know, being doing things first or making things happen and it was just there were just opportunities all over the place to to make things happen and i liked it because there were no there were no lawyers and no investment bankers there at the time at what us i mean it, it had not begun to come out and there were no there was no legal systems that you could trust except in hong kong and singapore mm-hmm. so your word really meant something if you uh, if you had a good reputation, good things happened. And if you had a bad reputation, nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And I just uh, I liked that a lot. <laughs> Did you ever make your way back to Vietnam while you were over oh, there? Oh sure, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in Vietnam. Uh, I was on the last seat on the last Air Vietnam flight out of Nha Trang at the end. Still didn't really believe it was going to go, mm-hmm. and none of our people did. Um, and then I was uh, I was the chairman of the company that built the first office building in Hanoi after the war. That sounds like I was more involved in it than I was, but I, the guy who really did it was another guy named Frank Fletcher. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was in, you know I, was, I, I participated. Yeah, and I've been back uh, several times off and on since. And I, I, I love Vietnam. I like what Vietnam. What about the Congo? Have you, have you made your way back there? No, it's I have. It's a little harder to do now. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a little harder to do. In fact, I'm almost thinking you'd have to, to, if I were to go back to Albertville, I'd love to take my son. But I think if you're going to do that, uh, you'd have to go uh, just like Che did. You'd have to go from uh, Tanzania across mm-hmm. the lake. I'm not sure I'd want to fly across the Congo in an Air Congo right. airplane. <laughs> so it may it may be another couple of years. Well, yeah. maybe not. Maybe it just never yeah, stabilizes. It's just I just you know the names are still the same. Yeah. The same rape, pillage, plunder is yeah. going on. Uh, it's just you know there there are no photo ops, so it's pretty hard to get Hollywood's interest. Right. And it's just uh, it's just it's a shame. You six million people. Where is the outcry? Six right. million people. Uh, Terrible. Well, the book is fascinating. I, I, I've, I knew these stories, but certainly not to the extent that I was able to learn about them in here. It's called Cold War Navy Seal, My Story of Che Guevara, War in the Congo and the Communist Threat in Africa. The author is James Hawes. And we Mary, really appreciate And Marianne Keenan. Oh, absolutely, and a co-author. Um, but it, your life is fascinating, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us here about it at SpyCast. Um, Look, this book is out now. Um, it's worth grabbing. I read it in just a couple hours. It's just, it's so readable. Um, and the stories are, uh, you're right in the middle of everything. Uh, and I know that, that kind of 
a great um, narrative for people who listen to this because um, it, these are again well-known stories. Che Guevara, we're talking about uh, the kind of the Stanleyville raid and other things, but you kind of do this first-person on the ground perspective that's been missing uh, from the history. So we really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I highly recommend the book, uh, and thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I hope anyone uh, who reads it will give me some feedback. I'd love to hear it. Thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.